Okay, and the name of this talk is An Awakening. Um, and actually this talk was inspired by Nina. I have to give you credit for this. Because she, she kept asking me about this story that I've used in teaching. And uh, I haven't used it in a long time. I haven't given this talk in a long time. And I thought, oh, and, I, and, and so I was trying to find the, the story for her give it to her and then I read the story it's like oh I love this story and then I thought well what am I talking about this week and we've just done the four foundations of mindfulness we went through not excuse me the four noble truths we've just gone through the four noble truths and we're probably going to start into a series on the eightfold path which is the fourth noble truth but I wanted to wait a little bit um, for one reason is I won't be here the next two weeks. So now I'm getting this into my, my announcements. Um, I won't be here. I'll be away on retreat. I'm teaching retreat, and then I'm sitting a little retreat. Um, so I'll be gone, and um, Don Neal will be here. Don's taught here many times and practiced in Asia, and is really a lovely being, lovely teacher. Um, um, so... Um, I thought tonight, oh, maybe I'll do this talk. I'll do an awakening and see what comes out, see what happens, because it's such an interesting story. And so I'm going to begin with the story, and it's a Zen story. <clears throat> and it's about two Zen, a Zen teacher and his student, Jijo, the, the Zen master, Setsugin. And Satsugin says to his student, he's, here's his teaching to his student, he says, if you meditate single-mindedly without interruption for seven days and nights, and yet still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make it my skull into a night soil scoop. Okay? So that's, you know, he's giving him a very strong instruction and he's willing to stand behind it, right? I'll say more about it. So, and then, and so, so this is the instruction, right? If you, you know, meditate uh, mindfully without interruption for seven days and nights and yet still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. And I'm sure you all know what a night soil scoop is. Of course you don't, but I'll say more later. Um, so, and it, the story goes on. Not very long after that, Jijo came down with a case of dysentery. Taking a bucket to a secluded place, he sat on it and held his attention in right mindfulness. And when he had sat on the bucket for seven straight days, one night, he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. Right? So he's, he's got dysentery, and he gets a bucket, and he goes and shits for seven days. And while he's sitting, he's being mindful, and, and after seven days, one night, he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight 
and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. Right? And he'd been absorbed, the story goes on, he'd been absorbed in this state for a long time when he was startled into self-awareness on hearing a sound. He found his whole body running with sweat and his sickness had disappeared. In celebration, he wrote this verse, radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. Okay? So I'm sure you all get that story totally, right? Or something. I hope you get something. And I hope I can say something about the story, which I can't, because I love the story. It's a beautiful story of awakening. And it's beautiful for many reasons, and some of which I'd like to highlight. The first part that I love is the relationship between Satsugan and Jijo. Right? It's Buddhism is a relational teaching, right? The refuges we took earlier, the third refuge is for Sangha, is about our interconnectedness. And it's inherent in the teaching, right? The teaching, all of the Buddha's teaching, you know, I could, you know, I have, I have hundreds of talks I've given. It all comes from the Buddha. It's all from a, in a relationship. We're, we all are in relationship with the Buddha, whether we know it or not. If you're here, you're in relationship with the Buddha, with a person who lived some 2,600 years ago and sought to discover what's possible for human beings. He wasn't satisfied with the usual idea, with the usual beliefs about what was possible. And he discovered something that's still alive that we're in relationship with if we come to a group like this. Even once, you're then in relationship with the Buddha. And relationships are powerful and important. And, uh, um, you know, when I think about my own practice, Faye was saying some things about my practice. My appreciation for my teachers is tremendous. I just have a great love for the people I've sat with over the years, you know, and men, you know, some of whom have become my friends and some of whom have died. But it still doesn't matter. The relationship is still there. The power of what was offered through human beings in relationship touched me. And it's not just my teachers, but the people I've sat with over the years, and both, both on retreat and in Sangha here, too. I mean, it's just, it's something. Here, I'm going to be really honest. Okay, here, really honest. Like, I come here, and you all are here, and I'm like, wow, all these people are here. <laughs> and really, I mean, that may sound silly since I've been teaching here for 25 years, but it's really true. And it's like, oh, I actually want to do my best. What is my best? My best is to see, oh, can the Dharma come through me? 
right? It's not about me doing something, but it's about something that's being invoked in relationship because the Dharma comes as Sangha together. And so it's also in relationship, in relatedness. And, and then um, Satsugin's, uh, you know, he's my kind of guy, right? I like that kind of teaching. You know, if you meditate single-mindedly without interruption for seven days and nights and yet still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night suit, excuse me, night soil scoop. And a night soil scoop is for what you do with your shit, you know, you, you, that's what he would say, you can make my skull into that kind of scoop, right? Oh, you have to pick up your shit and put it away somewhere, you know, because they're out in the country and, you know, you want to get it at least away from the village or something or there's certain places to put it. And, and so there's a challenge that also Setsugan is setting up for Jijo, which is something we're all challenged by, which is, what does it mean to wake up? What does it mean for each of us personally to wake up? What is our delusion that we need to wake up from? What is our confusion that we need help with? What is our misunderstanding that we want to get clarified so we can start to really wake up as human beings? Or not really wake up, so we can continue to wake up and realize our human potential, which is what the Buddha realized, human potential. And so the challenge includes what he says, which is, you know, you want to meditate, you know, uh, uh, without interruption, seven days and night. That's a classic Buddhist understanding of what it takes. One way to awaken is you meditate without interruption for seven days and nights, you'll get it. Do it. Really, it sounds like maybe not. Do it. See what happens if you meditate without interruption for seven days and nights. And here's, here's the classic traditional version of it in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Um, and it's the conclusion after the Buddha gives these teachings about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind and heart, mindfulness of dharma, and then he gives the conclusion. And he says, bhikkhus, and everybody here is a bhikkhu. If you practice, one of the interpretations of bhikkhu is a practitioner. And so it includes all of us. He says, bhikkhus, if one should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, excuse me, one of two fruits could be expected for, for one. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, then there'll be non-return. Not non-return means, oh, it'll take a teeny bit more time, and then you'll wake up. Right? So this is, and this is if you do it for seven years. And then he starts to downgrade how long it'll take. 
right? He's a good salesman sometimes in Buddha. And so he says, um, 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 let alone seven years, because if one should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, for five years, for four, three, two, one year, one of two fruits could be expected for him or her. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, then non-return or a little longer. And then, and then they go, he keeps going, he keeps, he keeps making the carrot closer to what we could grab. He says, let alone one year, because if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness um, uh, in such a way for seven months, or six months, or five months, four, three, two, one, or half month, one of two fruits could be expected for him or her. And then, let alone half a month, bhikkhus, if one could develop these four foundations of mindfulness with continuity, with diligence, with sincerity, for, um, for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him or her. And, with, and that was the final reference that he made. He says, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, and for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And so Satsugan understands the importance of continuity. Even if you do this for seven days, it'll change you forever. I promise you that. If you do seven days, if you stay mindful, seriously mindful for seven days, you'll never be the same. <clears throat> and so that's something that he's asking of Jijo. Commit yourself. Commit yourself fully. See what happens. And it's an important part of Buddhist practice for all of us is do we really give ourselves to practice so practice can take us somewhere we don't know, somewhere we might be unfamiliar with, somewhere that may wake us up out of our sleep. <clears throat> and there's a, a, a quote that I believe Jack Cornfield always used to use in, the, in what I call the old days of my practice, long time ago. And it's from the Scottish Himalayan Expedition. And, uh, and the quote is, until one is committed until one gives oneself, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. Right. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, 
raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. And it's a beautiful understanding what, what they're saying. When we really commit ourselves, providence moves also. Really, the numinous comes with our commitment, with our dedication, with our devotion to what we care about and what we believe in and what we value and what's of import. <clears throat> and so in our story Satsugan challenges Jijo to really commit himself and so what happens in the story how does it he end up committing himself gets sick. pardon he gets, sick. he gets sick he gets dysentery how many people here have had dysentery? Okay, I'm, I'm happy I'm in, in some friends here because I've had dysentery and it stinks. <laughs> that, that works as a joke, but really, I mean, that is not fun. That is really not fun. I mean, and I was in Asia the first time I ever went to Asia. I was in Kathmandu a long, long time ago, and really Kathmandu seemed like the, you know, the 12th century to me at that time. I was very young, and I'd never been out of the country, and I went directly to, to Nepal. Somebody took me to Nepal, a friend of mine who was, uh, who was doing business in India, but he was going to Nepal, and so I went to Nepal with him. And then he went to India to do his business, and I was in Kathmandu, and it was like, I'd never been, I'd never been out of America, I'd never been anywhere. And like, this was another world, and it was fantastic, and, and changed my whole life to be, be there. Uh, but the hardest part was, I ate at this place called Indira, because it was named after Indira Gandhi, right? And I thought, oh, that, that'll be a good place to eat. <laughs> and when I went, I, and there was one person my friend had introduced me to, an American poet who was living in Kathmandu. And I was a musician at the time, and so I was hanging out with the poet. He would read poetry, I would play. And, uh, and when I told them, when I got dysentery, uh, he said, where did you eat? And I said, oh yeah, I ate it in Dira's last night. He said, oh, that's the filthiest place in Kathmandu. <laughs> you don't even want to think about that kind of stuff. But anyhow, so I got dysentery. And it was, it was tough. It was tough. Actually, you know, here, here's how I got treated in Kathmandu. Um, they gave me opium. Because opium binds you up. And so if you eat a little bit of opium, it binds your stomach. And it also quiets your mind a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what, uh, what heroin comes from, really, is opium. And it was, I got to appreciate uh, opium, even though it was all for medical reasons. <laughs> and uh, really, I even had to, I had to hide some opium 
because I kept thinking, well, you know, I'll get better. Here's, I was very naive. I thought, okay, so I've got dysentery. I'll, and I didn't even know I had dysentery. I just knew I had these shits. And, uh, and uh, I'll be better when I get back to America. And so I, I thought I just need enough opium to get back to America. And so I hid some opium in my flute case thing, and I went to go fly back to America and, and in India, I would go from Kathmandu to Delhi, and a guy started asking me about who was I, and oh, was I a musician? I pulled out my flute and started playing for the customs guy, and, and he started going through my stuff, and, and, he, and I had all this poetry, and he said, what's this? I said, oh, it's poetry, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, and my friends are poets. He said, oh, artist, musician, poet, you people like drugs. <laughs> and he started looking through everything for drugs. And I said, oh, not me, I don't like drugs. And I kept playing the flute and staying pretty relaxed, and, and he never found the opium. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't think I would have done well in an Indian jail, to be honest. Uh, uh, so anyhow, I, I, just so you know, I had the opium hidden, hidden in the crown of the flute, because there's a little crown on the flute, and it's a perfect place if you're ever hiding opium. <laughs> so... <laughs> so um, so dysentery, though, I got home, and oh, I, the dysentery didn't go away immediately because I was back in America. I didn't realize that. <laughs> like I had to, I had to eat white rice and dry toast for a number of weeks, right? And whatever I did, but finally it went away. Thank God, that was not fun. But um, but it was very humbling to have dysentery, right? And any disease is actually humbling. And I've had other body difficulties like bike accidents and stuff. It's humbling. But even just disease is humbling. We see how vulnerable we are. And we forget about it at times, and it's great. If you don't have to think about it, don't think about it, right? If, you don't, if you're not having any problems, you don't have to think about it. But you will have problems at some point. That's just the nature of having a, a human body. And so it's very humbling when that happens. And it points to our vulnerability as human beings. And we're all, you know, this is vulnerable. And it's, it's a little, it seems less vulnerable when we're young, as long as nothing bad happens. As long as you don't have a car accident or a bike accident or you get accidentally pregnant if you're a woman or if you have to, you know, fall down somewhere where you're not supposed to fall down and you rip something or break something or tear something, and, right? And then you see how vulnerable bodies are. And it's just, and it's not a bad thing, it's just the nature of reality that reality has its inherent vulnerability for living beings of which we are one, right? And so Jijo uh, starts to feel his total vulnerability because he has dysentery. And so he has to sit on a pot and it's humbling and it's 
part of the vulnerability. <clears throat> and again, the seven straight days. I want to say some more about that. Oh yeah, I, did. I read that part. I gave you that. Okay, seven straight days, and then um, and what happens though? for Jijo as he sits for seven straight days. And believe me, even if you sit for a few straight days and really be mindful moment by moment, you usually tell level we're not familiar with in normal everyday life, but if we really practice and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and eat and sit and walk, and we just do that, things start to unify. Consciousness and the body starts to unify. And that unification is called samadhi in Buddhism. And samadhi is very powerful. It's one of the factors of awakening. It's a very important part of all deep mindfulness practice on retreat is samadhi, is this unification of body, heart, mind. And, and then that unification is incredibly pleasurable. Very pleasurable. It's like, oh, we land here in our experience in a whole, we're not lost in our thoughts. We're not lost in our ideas. We're not just uh, absorbed in, in memories or plans or past or future. We actually get absorbed in the present moment aliveness of being here, of consciousness that's embodied. And that's very, very powerful and very pleasurable, right? And so you hear one of his, the ways his samadhi is described, Jijo's samadhi is when he sat on the bucket for seven straight days. One night he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. That's, that's a samadhi experience. And you can have really blissful experiences with samadhi, really delicious experiences, pleasurable experiences, and, and even that, feel like the whole entire universe is too small to contain one, because one's consciousness expands totally, and you're not limited to any one place, you're everywhere at once, and except you're totally unified in that everywhere at once-ness. And it's hard to describe because the words don't do it justice. Logical words don't do it justice. It's why the mythopoetic is more appropriate for what happens with powerful <coughs> samadhi. And I was looking at some different stuff in different traditions even. Even in, in Christianity, Jesus said, if thy eye, thy eye be single, if thy eye be single, the body will be filled with light. Like that's a samadhi experience. If the eye be unified, and he's got B-Y-I, if the eye, if one's 
if one's vision, if everything gets unified, oh, you can have, I've had these experiences of the whole body being filled with light or being totally empty and, and effervescent, you know, and pleasurably effervescent, right? Or I was looking at my notes from this talk and I had a note from a woman who was on retreat that I was teaching and she said, oh, my breath is truly the beloved because we are focusing on mindfulness of breath and the unification happens through mindfulness of breath. My breath is truly the beloved. How can I bear it? The rapture is so intense. The pleasure is so intense. You have to actually keep relaxing with the rapture that can come with samadhi. And, and my own experience, I did a lot of samadhi practice at a certain point, and it's, it's fun. It, it's definitely fun because you start, there are all these different levels of samadhi, and you can start to have more and more, you can start to be more skillful in stimulating these different levels of samadhi, of unification. And, and you get to these states, I remember one state, it's like, oh, everything stopped. And I couldn't tell if I was in this world or the next world, and it didn't matter. It was so pleasurable. When I say so pleasurable, though, I'm talking about a sublime pleasure, a very quiet, it's, a, it's not a big rah-rah pleasure. It's like more and more relaxing into reality until you become one with it. And that's the pleasure of the absolute simplicity of being that is possible for us as human beings. And, and since I'm giving a big pitch for samadhi, I also have to say what happens to Jesus, right? Right? He says, you know, the entire universe was too small to contain him, and he'd been absorbed in this state for a long time, which can really happen. You can spend hours in these samadhi states that are just, you, you don't want to leave. They're so pleasurable. And when I say pleasure, I mean it's quiet pleasure. It's, it's like there's not a sound, and it's so pleasurable. It's not a movement of heart and mind that it's so pleasurable because it's so simple. And, um, and they said he'd been absorbed in the state a long time when he was startled into self-awareness on hearing a sound. And he found his whole body running with sweat and his sickness had disappeared in celebration. And so this is a beautiful understanding of what happens that the samadhi is support for awakening. It's not awakening itself, right? He has to wake up. He's, he's startled into self-awareness, right? That's the key to waking up, is self-awareness. And then, and then he finds his whole body running with sweat, and he's cured of his illness, of his dysentery, which is a metaphor for greed, hate, and delusion. It's a metaphor for the illness of being human, of being caught, of, being, of clinging to, of being attached to greed, hate, delusion. And that's part of our suffering as human beings that the Buddha pointed at and kept saying, 
pay attention. That's why we did the Four Noble Truths, which is about suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, and then the path that leads to the end. And so the end of the illness is pointing at freedom, at the freedom, at the waking up that is possible. Um, for all of us, right, that is most accurately pointed at in mythopoetic ter terms like awakening. Or here's from Sen Master Dogen, who's this is a little poem from him describing awakening. He writes, midnight, midnight, no waves, no wind. The empty boat is flooded with moonlight. Midnight, no waves, no wind. The empty boat is flooded with moonlight. Of course, just a little context, always in Japanese uh, Buddhism, Japanese Zen, moonlight, it means awakening. Or here's an awakening poem from another uh, Zen master who I love very much, Ikkyu. Uh, uh, and Ikkyu was, was, uh, was quite revered and quite a bad boy at the same time. And so his awakening poem reads, for 20 years I was in turmoil. For 20 years I was in turmoil, seething and angry, but now my time has come. The crow laughs, an arhat emerges from the felt. Arhat means awakened one. An arhat emerges from the felt, and in the sunlight a jade beauty sings. For 20 years I was in turmoil, seething and angry, and now my time has come. The crow laughs, and an arhat emerges from the filth, and in the sunlight a jade beauty sings. And I'll give you one more awakening poem from the Buddha. It's a very traditional description of awakening. He says, where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold. Where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahmin, a practitioner, has come to know this for herself, through her own experience, then she is freed from form and formless, freed from pain, freed from pleasure. So he's describing the paradox of waking up. It's not something we get. It's something that gets us. <coughs> and of course, Jijo has his own poem of awakening, radiant, spiritual. What is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you missed it. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. 
for beautiful, beautiful understanding, right? You know, radiant spiritual, what is this? This is the essential Zen question. And it's how Zen is taught. What is this? Right now, what is this? What is hearing this? What is thinking about this? What is liking this or not liking this? Not to focus on the liking or not liking or, or the words, but what is hearing it? What is in you? Where does the liking come from? Not what causes you to like or not like. What's, where does the consciousness come from? What is this? What is consciousness? Where is it? And it's right here. And so we want to get closer, get more intimate with what's sitting right here. Because what the Buddha pointed at is sitting in your seat right here, right now. Right? Radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you missed it. It's right here. Where, where else could it be except right here? You know, it's, it's not in the other room we, we normally sit in. Right? Or it is in the other room, but with the gentlemen who are there tonight, but it's here also. Or it's wherever you are. And then he says it, he so organizes the Dharma. He says, the spatula by the toilet shines with light, right? It's everywhere. It's in the bathroom. Waking up happens anywhere, everywhere. Consciousness, right? You can go to the bathroom. You can have the best waking up ever. Like Jijo did, really. But it, but it is what I appreciate is the normalization of waking up, right? The spatula by the toilet shines with light. It's everywhere and everything. And there's a beautiful phrase from poem from Kabir, who said, "When the eyes and the ears are open." When the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When the eyes and the ears are open, even the, uh, even, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. Or as Jijo would said, when the eyes and ears are open, even the spatula by the toilet shines with light. It teaches like pages from the scriptures. And then he says the most beautiful thing, after all, it was just me all along. It's all that what you seek is right here. It, it's actually right here. It's what you are. It's not your personality. It's not your idea of what you are. It's the actuality of what's alive here, of consciousness here, of the purity of the consciousness that's here. After all, it was just me all along. It's one of the things that happens in realization is we start to, oh, I've been taking myself to be someone else, something else, 
all this, all my history, all that's happened, or all the problems, or all of this, or all of that. And we have to deal with all that stuff, but it's not who we are, not in essence. Oscar Wilde said it this way, he said, the final mystery is oneself. The final mystery is oneself. And of course, Ajahn Chah said, said it this way, he said, we don't get Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. There are a few thoughts tonight. Hope it got recorded. <laughs> any any thoughts, questions, liking, not liking, reactions? We have. Uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.